God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together. We thank you for your faithfulness toward us. God, we thank you for these days in which you continue to shape us as a community, as disciples. And we ask in these moments that you would continue that work. We ask that you'd be faithful to complete what you've begun in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would and make us new continually by your spirit in us. By the hearing of your word together, by coming to your table together, Lord, may we be changed. As we look to Exodus over the course of this summer, God, may we be changed. Not just learning things about Exodus, Lord, but, but asking ourselves difficult questions. Considering things maybe that we haven't, Lord. We ask, God, that you'd help us to see your scripture from a different angle, a different perspective that you'd open our eyes, help us to see these, these blind spots that we've had for so long, help us to come to know you in a much deeper way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so again, today we begin our series. For 11 weeks, we will be in Exodus, together Walking, obviously, in 11 weeks, you can't cover the whole of the book, not every chapter of Exodus, and that's not our intention. Um, but normally, what happens at the beginning of a series is I will stand up here, uh, and I will try to answer the why. Why are we doing Exodus? Why for 11 weeks? Why for the whole of the summer? But I was thinking about it this week. Here's the thing. Most of you already know the answer to that question. You already kind of get it. You know how many stories come from this book. You know that it would be impossible for me to overstate the significance of the book of Exodus. Not just for the Old Testament, right? It's not just significant or central to the Old Testament. It is significant for the whole of Scripture. What you're seeing in Exodus shapes everything that will come after it. This story became like the paradigm for what salvation looks like in the minds of God's people. This is the perfect picture of salvation. The Exodus was the paradigm for redemption and salvation and, and what it looks like when God decides he's going to deliver and save his people. And I think we also have a paradigm for salvation in our minds, a, a picture that comes to mind, a, a world in which we're kind of working when it comes to the world or the, the idea of salvation. For many people, that's like their, their personal experience, their individual experience of salvation. And what they mean is like what it was like to come to faith. We live in a very individualistic society, and that's generally how we think about salvation. Maybe we think about salvation as this theological idea that was taught to us in church, what it really means, what the substance of salvation is. For many other people, it will be the sort of cultural narrative of redemption and salvation that's so embedded in all these stories that we tell, all these books that we read and movies that we consume, right? Maybe that's what comes to mind. But we all have something. And for, for Israel, that thing that came to mind when they thought of God saving them, this story, Exodus, more than anything else, shaped how they understood salvation. They thought of Exodus. And at the center of this story of salvation and redemption is this man. You meet him for the first time, Moses, in chapter 2. 
But even though in our minds, Moses has a kind of legend status, because of all these stories we know about him, he becomes like a legend in our minds. What's so surprising about the beginning of Exodus is it's like the author is trying to tell you Exodus isn't about Moses. He's trying to convince us that though we may associate Exodus more with him than with anybody else, he's the figure we most associate with this story. He's not the hero of Exodus. We tend to do this. We always need a hero in whatever story we're telling, and we assume Moses is just like every other hero we've ever seen, but it's different. The story is not just about one person. It's about a whole people. It's not just about one person. It's about this entire people and the God who has attached himself to them. That's what Exodus is about, not just one man and what incredible things he's going to do. It's about this whole people that God has attached himself to. And the Egyptians call them Hebrew. You've probably heard this. You know it well. They call them Hebrew. The word is hapiru. And it's not a word that the Egyptians use only for Jewish people. Hapiru means any people who don't have a land of their own. It means any people who don't have a, a, a nation that might be recognized, right? They're kind of nameless people. They're poor, marginalized. They're slaves. They are Hebrew. It's kind of like our word gypsy. It's not just one culture, one people that we might call gypsies. It's a way of life. It's something that has come to shape them. And the word Hebrew is very similar. There are people who wander from one land to another because they have none to call their own. They're poor, they're marginalized, they're slaves, they're, they're Hebrew. But Exodus needs you to know they're not just Hebrew. They're Israel. They're not just any faceless, nameless people. They are God's own people. And he has decided to bless them and to bless the world through them. God has decided to reveal himself to the world through them. This is how God is going to make himself known. So the story, I think none of us would argue with. It's supremely about God and his decision to help Israel, to bless them, to save them in what is their darkest moment, when things have gotten the worst. This is how God has chosen to make himself known through what he can do for Israel. God does not desire to dwell at a distance from his creation. God desires to be known. And the way that he's going to make himself known to the nations, to the entirety of the world, is through this people and what he can do for them. And so the story begins pretty dark. It begins with the oppression of God's people. But if you read to the end... It ends with the liberation of God's people, right? It begins with slavery, and it ends in freedom. It begins with what seems like the death of Israel. They cannot last much longer like this. They can't hold up under the weight of oppression and slavery much longer. But as you read further, you begin to see just the life of God erupting within them as they're delivered from slavery, as they leave Egypt and begin to move toward this new land that God has from them, for them. They, they escape slavery. They escape hopelessness. But here's the thing. This story isn't just some reminder of what God did one time, a long time ago, for those people. Exodus is written for us. 
It's a word to us. It was a word to Israel. They came back to it again and again. They needed to hear it again and again. But I think it's important for us to recognize this book, Exodus, is a call for us, a word spoken to us as much as for them. And we can miss that a lot of times. It's really important, Exodus, I think, for, again, especially an individualistic society, because Exodus takes what is our modern obsession with the idea of my salvation, individual experience of salvation, and it helps us to see this larger idea of communal salvation, even global salvation, that God intends to save more than just me. God intends to do something far larger in scope than I might have imagined, right? Exodus enlarges our view of God, what he's capable of, who he is. God doesn't just save Moses from death in our story today. He's not just saving this little baby who almost dies in the Nile. No, he, he's telling us this story so that we know just as God has delivered Moses, he's going to deliver his own people from death, the whole of his people. He hasn't just saved me. It's something bigger God is doing. Exodus kind of moves us away from our silly notions of some spiritual God who's floating somewhere off in the heavens. That maybe someday you'll know, you'll encounter. Instead of these silly, distant notions of God, spiritual, floating around in the heavens, we're given a picture of an incarnate God, a God who desires to dwell with humanity. Ultimately, eventually, in humanity, right? This is a God who desires to make himself known, to dwell with his people. He desires this. So the story begins with what seems like God's absence. It seems like he has forgotten the people he said he was going to bless in Genesis. You read Exodus and it just sounds stunning. The pharaohs have forgotten. And now God's people are languishing in slavery. It begins with, with God's absence, it seems like, but you read to the end when you get to the end of Exodus, the last words of Exodus tell us that Moses and the people have built this tabernacle. And God's presence, his very presence, fills the tabernacle. So much so that Moses can't even go in. God's glory, his very presence is with his people. This is what salvation looks like. We move from God's absence to the fullness of his presence. This is what salvation looks like. God delivers us so that he can make a covenant with us. He doesn't desire just to save us from this thing and then step away from it, take his hands out of the situation. No, he saves us that he can make a covenant with us, ultimately so that he can dwell in intimate relationship with us. This is God's desire. It's the whole point. God's not just showing off for no reason. The point is that he might be known in intimate relationship. Exodus shows us Eden restored. What was lost in Genesis is now being restored. What they longed to experience, just as Adam and Eve had, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day with his people, Exodus shows us restored. His very presence is with them. He's trying to make a way. God saves his people just so that he can be with his people once more. Okay, so that's Exodus, right? And at the center of that story of God's salvation is this human figure. 
The center of the story of Exodus is salvation, right? But at the center of that story is Moses. And no, again, he's not the hero in the storyline. You don't need to make Moses the hero. He's just one ordinary human who's been invited into God's story. And nobody is more aware of that than Moses. Moses is frightened. He's scared to death. He knows how ordinary he is, just as we know how ordinary we are. But that's the reality. He's just this one human invited into it. But the problem is, Moses' role in the story is in jeopardy from the beginning, right? That's what chapter 2 is all about. He's born during this time when there's a new pharaoh. This pharaoh does not see the Hebrews as allies as other pharaohs before them had. They don't, they don't see him in the same way any longer. The Egyptians begin to see Moses and the Hebrews as a threat. It's a problem. They're beginning to ask some really hard questions. Pharaoh doesn't know what to think. And so he, he tells the Hebrew midwives, these are Hebrew women who deliver babies within this community of Hebrews in Egypt. He tells them, you're to kill every little baby boy that's born. Don't allow them to survive. It's horrifying to think about. And there's this incredible moment of defiance, right? It's easy for us to read over it, but like this is Pharaoh and these simple midwives in an act of open rebellion, right? Defiance against the king. They refuse to do it. They will not do this. And here, side note, just for a second. Pharaoh is scared to death of Hebrew men, right? Little Hebrew boys become Hebrew men who become Hebrew warriors, who become Hebrew insurgents. He's scared that they'll join the enemies of Egypt and attack Egypt because they were enslaved there, right? He knows the potential that these little boys have to cause all kinds of trouble. And what he doesn't know is the potential that these little Hebrew girls have to cause all kinds of trouble. Like, it's incredible. Like, it's incredible. These little girls are turning into Hebrew midwives, who are doing things in the most clever kinds of ways. They're just like, sorry, guy. We wanted to help you out. But boss, listen, these women are different. They give birth much more vigorously than Egyptians, and, and we can't get there in time. They manipulate the story. They undermine the power of Pharaoh. It's amazing, right? But Pharaoh decides to take a different path, even more horrifying. He decides to enlist every Egyptian citizen in this plot to murder children. He says, any child, any Hebrew boy you find, any young infant boys are to be thrown into the Nile and drowned. That's a holocaust of another kind, right? It's not enacted or, or, or put in place by some government entity or, or, or military power. Every Egyptian citizen is involved in this act of terror. Like, it's a really dark moment. It seems like Moses' life will be over before it can really begin. But there are all these clues telling you otherwise. This child is different. This is not the end for God's people, right? So if you look, there are all these reminders. And this is really helpful if you pay attention to what the author of Exodus is doing and the way it connects to Genesis. 
right? The idea is, remember what God did in Genesis. He did amazing things there, and he's going to do amazing things here. God has not forgotten his people. He's not abandoned his people. So first off, if you, you notice, in our passage today, it says that Moses' mother looks at her son, and she sees that he is, our translation said, a fine child. He's a fine child. Translation is fine, but it kind of misses what's said in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says she looks at her child, and she saw that he was tov. He was good. She looked at her son, and she saw that he was good. It sounds like Genesis 1. That's all on purpose. God, after creating for six days, he looks at everything he's done, he marvels at it, and he says, it is tov. It's good. It's like the author wants you to know, just like God has not abandoned his creation, he's not going to abandon this good child. He will not abandon Moses, right? You go further, and there's this other connection that's being made. Another thing Moses' mother does, when she's hidden him for, for long enough, she realizes she can't hide him any longer. She doesn't know what to do. She's at a loss, and so she just takes and she places him in this, this basket, a teba in Hebrew. She places him in this basket, and she leaves him floating in the reeds of the Nile. It sounds a lot like Genesis 6. Now, this connection is not as easy to notice, but God looks at Noah in Genesis 6, and he says to Noah, I want you to build a teba, basket and ark are the same word in Hebrew. I want you to build an ark for the storm that is coming, right? The author of Exodus is being intentional. Moses' mother built an ark for Moses, and she placed him in the Nile. God has not abandoned his good creation. God did not abandon Noah and his family to disaster, and God is not going to abandon this baby to disaster. More than that, God is not going to abandon his people to disaster. That's why we're being told the whole story, right? You see all of these connections that are trying to be made. Everything tells us God is going to deliver. He hasn't abandoned them before, and God isn't going to start now. So you notice at the end, Moses' mother names him, Moses, Moshe, in Egyptian. But the translation tells us she named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. In Egyptian, Moshe is just a common name. In Hebrew, Moshe, that Egyptian word sounds almost identical to the Hebrew word for drawing someone out. You might have seen that. A lot of times there's a little footnote in your Bibles. God, they're saying, is about to draw Moses out of the water, and he's about to draw his people out of the waters, right? God's people are in a mess, right? And God is about to save them from Pharaoh and Egypt and slavery and disaster, right? In the beginning of the story, it looks like Moses is going to be drowned. All these other Hebrew people are going to drown. But by the end of the story, it's Pharaoh and his armies that will drown. There's this incredible thing that they're trying to tell us. They're trying to put all these clues in here so that you understand from the beginning God is going to deliver. God's people will not drown. They will not be lost in the water. It will be Pharaoh who is lost in the water. Pharaoh is the one who will go down into the waters. And as the curtains kind of like draw on what is the first episode in the book of Exodus, let's be real. Like we're applauding 
right? This all makes sense to us. As the audience who is, is participating in this whole story, like we are applauding, we shout and we clap. Makes me think of those people on, on a plane. Every time it lands, they feel like they need to kind of give that, that light clap. They're, they're so, and I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's nervousness, whatever it is. There are always those people. They do it in movies, too. The credits come on, and they need to start clapping, and the rest of us kind of uncomfortably are like, are we supposed to? What, what are we? What are we? This, this thing happens, right? The same way. Like, here we are. We're just kind of like, I think that's, they're the good guys. That's us. We're, we're clapping. Like, yeah. Like, we identify with Israel. This all makes sense. They're our people. They're God's people. God has saved Israel, and that means God has saved us. We connect with this story as believers. It's easy for us to do that, and we're right to. But the story is written to confront us as much as it is to comfort us. It's meant to comfort us. We ought to take comfort in God's deliverance, God's salvation, that God does what he says he's going to do. God stands against oppression and injustice. He delivers his people from death, right? This is the gospel. But we also need to recognize it's written to confront as much as it is to comfort. I think we're confronted with a number of questions, but one I was thinking of this week is, it's like, yeah, you like this story. But there are more than, than one story, right? More than one storyline, I guess I should say, in the book of Exodus, which story is really yours? Like, yes, you identify with this one aspect of the story, right? But which narrative have you really bought into? Because it's easy for me to accept God has saved me. Even God has saved us, right? It's easy for me to accept that at some level and to forget at the same time that this is more than just a spiritual fable, just some religious tale we use to, to make ourselves feel better. This isn't about a salvation that will happen at some point in the distant future when we die. This is about a salvation that, that is physical, that is here and now, that's a social reality. There's a social reality at work in the book of Exodus. God is saving his people not just from some physical situation, I mean, spiritual situation, but from a very real physical circumstance, right? He doesn't just say, hey, one day things will get better. They're slaves, and he delivers them from slavery, right? It's easy for us to accept that we have been saved, to celebrate that our oppression, that our struggle has come to an end, that we have found life, and to move on from that and ignore the fact that there are still many who are still engaged in that same struggle who are still wrestling with oppression <clears throat> and injustice, who still very much feel in the grips of death and hopelessness, it's easy to just move on from it. And that's why both Exodus and Deuteronomy have this statement that's repeated, like a chorus. If you read the rest of Exodus, you'll see it. If you read Deuteronomy, you'll hear it. God says, he'll give them a command, right, that they're supposed to be a just and merciful people, right? He'll give them a command that they're supposed to be different in the way that they treat foreigners and strangers in their land and the poor in their land. And then he'll always use this phrase, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember what you came from. Always repeating, reminding them, don't just be satisfied in your salvation. 
Don't move on from the fact that there are still so many languishing in the same kind of situation, right? Remember, it's so easy to forget, to embrace this one part of the story and then move on from that story, right? And to embrace another narrative. We can embrace the narrative of Pharaoh, the narrative of Egypt, the narrative of our society. We accept this one aspect of God's story, that I've been saved, and then we embrace this whole other narrative by which we live our lives, which is all about power and success and wealth and affluence and comfort and convenience. This is the story. This is the narrative that shapes us so much. This is how we make all of our decisions so often. It's easy for it to happen, and that's why God is saying, remember what you were. Remember what you came from, what I delivered you from, because it's easy to embrace that narrative centered on success and convenience and comfort, even when it comes at the cost of oppression, of domination, right? It happens all the time. There are a lot of things that we can rationalize because we're comfortable and we're not feeling it, right? We can model our lives around this mindset. We can push for success and prosperity, even when it comes at the cost of dehumanization, right? When other people are being pressed down by it, when other people are being hurt by it, and the question people in our society tend to ask, many in the church, is like, but that's not something I'm experiencing, so I don't really know what to do with it. I, I'm not really as concerned about it, obviously, because it's not happening to me. And God is saying, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Because that, that whole success at all costs narrative that is so central to, to the American dream that many people have in their minds, that success at all costs narrative forgets the cross of Jesus. And we can embrace it so easily. It's so easy. And Exodus is this confrontation forcing us to ask the question, what is really your story? You can embrace the narrative of society, or you can embrace this new narrative that God is writing of redemption and salvation, of hope in the midst of the hopelessness. You can seek freedom, not just for yourself, but for those who are still captive. You can seek, seek justice, not just for those and those you feel connected to, but for all who are experiencing injustice and being wronged, right? This is supposed to be the narrative of God's people. Exodus is asking us, what's really your story? Walter Brueggemann says it really well. He calls it switching stories. Part of coming to faith is that we switch stories. We once lived according to this other narrative, and we have to switch. We have to swap narratives all together, and there are many of us who never did. We embrace this one aspect of God's story. We like it. We cheer and applaud, but we don't want to embrace the rest. We substitute something else. We continue to lean upon an old narrative. Have you actually switched stories, Exodus is asking us. Some of us switch stories at some point, and then we, we slowly kind of, you know, as the Baptists that I grew up with would say, they, they kind of backslid. They let go of this one story and they embraced one that was more convenient all over again. Have you switched stories somewhere along the way? And I think that's the question that we're being confronted with in Matthew. It's Matthew 2. When we meet Jesus, Matthew leans heavily on the story of Exodus. He wants you to remember Exodus when he's writing. It's like he wants you to hear the echoes of Moses when he's telling us the story. 
He says that Jesus was born under the reign of an unjust tyrant, very much like Pharaoh, not as powerful though. He's born under the reign of, of King Herod, a man who just like Pharaoh is scared to death that his reign as king is going to be threatened at some point. He lives in fear of it. And Herod, when he hears the birth of Jesus as the king of the Jews, the wise men come to Jerusalem and they're like, hey, we're looking for a baby that's been born as king of the Jews. Can you imagine how offensive that must have been? Wait, wait, so you come to the door of the king of the Jews and you say, hey, I heard the king of the Jews has been born somewhere around here. Can you help me find him? It does not go over well. Herod says, like Pharaoh, I want every little baby boy in Bethlehem where the Messiah is supposed to come from. I want every one of them murdered. It's this terrible moment. Jesus is born into that same kind of darkness. It seems as if Jesus' life may end before it can really begin. Matthew wants you to hear that. He was born into this very dark moment, not just for, for Jesus, right? Jesus is representative of Israel, just like Moses was of Israel. Israel was in a dark moment of oppression, the occupation of Rome, and many of them were longing for exodus. They found themselves feeling like slaves all over again, feeling like strangers in their own land. And they were longing for an exodus, a new exodus. They were looking for this salvation, right? They were looking for a better king than Pharaoh or Herod, right? They were looking for Messiah, looking for God to save them. But the problem is they had turned to a different narrative. They were still holding on to a, a different story, right? They never really switched stories. I think about the disciples. Um, I don't know how much time you give to, to this collection of 12 disciples, but it's interesting, to say the least, who Jesus is asking to be a part of this group. There are only 12. It's pretty exclusive, it seems like. In all of Israel, there are only 12 Jesus chooses to teach in this intimate kind of way, right? When Jesus finds Matthew, Matthew is a man, like the rest of Israel, who's struggling to figure out what he's supposed to do in the midst of this dark situation. And Matthew decides that the only way he can overcome the darkness of Rome is to join them. So he becomes a tax collector. He chooses to unjustly exploit his own people. The Romans don't tell him to do that. But he just knows that's how it goes. And he's okay with it. So that he can profit, so that he can survive himself in the midst of all of the trouble of Israel, he chooses to just join the enemy. He stole from, he manipulated his own people. He was not liked for it. Just like Zacchaeus. We know the story of Zacchaeus much more intimately. Matthew was the same kind of figure. And he didn't worry too much about all of the exploitation because things were okay from him, right? This is how Matthew had decided to do it. He had never really switched stories. He was living according to a different narrative, right? I think of, of Simon the Zealot, right? He's a disciple we don't know as well. But it's that title they give him, the Zealot, that's so important. He had a different narrative himself. He looks at the darkness of Rome and he realizes the only way to overcome Rome is violence. The only solution to our problem is the violent overthrow of this empire. And you know what? That's exactly what God's going to do. That's what Messiah is going to be like. That's what we're waiting on. The one who will tread out his wrath on Rome. It's coming. 
It's going to be bloody. It's going to be painful. And they're all looking forward to it. That is Simon. He never really switched stories. He believed violence was the way of the kingdom. That's what he was hoping for. James and John, you can't help but remember, because James and John found themselves in a pretty frustrating situation at one point. Uh, they were apparently pretty rough around the edges uh, because they have this nickname, right? They're the sons of, of thunder, everybody says. And uh, they're in Samaria at one point. They're preaching the kingdom of God. And the people aren't really jiving with what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. They don't necessarily agree with it. They haven't accepted the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. And James and John say, well, Jesus, what do you want us to do? They don't want us here. They're not accepting the message. Their solution? Kill them all, Jesus. Rain down fire from heaven, Jesus. And to us, it sounds absolutely absurd. But to them, it wasn't really that, that far off. Like, it was, it's pretty normal thought. The enemies of God deserve it. If they won't join the kingdom of God, if they won't give themselves to it, then we'll make ash of them. And Jesus has to say, wait, wait a minute. How have you gotten there, right? They never switch stories. They're holding on to something. And Matthew's telling us this story to show us just that. The kingdom is going to come differently than you thought it would. God's salvation is going to look different than you thought it would. You buy into all these narratives. You have all these ideas about what you think it should look like. And Matthew says it's going to look like none of them. Salvation is going to come differently. Oppression and injustice are going to be overcome differently. And that is Jesus. This is the means by which God is going to do it. This is what Messiah is going to look like. This child who escapes Herod just barely, who goes to live in Egypt for a while. Matthew needs you to know that Jesus lived in, Israel, in Egypt for a while before he came back to Israel. He came out of Egypt just like Moses did, just like God's people did. Jesus came out of Egypt, and just like Moses and just like God's people Jesus was delivered from what seemed like a certain death after his birth. Just like Moses, God was going to deliver his people through this figure, right? He wants you to see this. Just like Moses, he came out of Egypt, and just like Moses, he's going to deliver God's people from hopelessness and death. This is the one. Pay attention to him. You've been looking for an exodus. Jesus is the one who's going to lead this once for all exodus. He's the one that's going to do it. Pay attention to him. And I think we all believe that. We're, we're all going to nod our heads at that. Like, obviously, I believe that, that Jesus is the one. But Matthew, I think, is asking us the question, well, what narrative is really yours? Because James and John had met Jesus when they decided that it was okay to murder Samaritans. There are all these moments in our lives, like we know that the church is full of people who are just as hard-hearted as Pharaoh. That's, that's so central to this story of Moses in Exodus, is the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. But we know the church is full of people who have never let go of that narrative. They've never switched stories. They live their lives according to this way, this very unforgiving, unjust, unmerciful kind of path. It's about me and mine. 
It's about success and prosperity at all costs. And if you get in the way, I'm okay with it. We embrace that narrative. We build our lives around a narrative. And I, I feel like I notice it most of all. Like that question rings most true for me as I've been thinking about the last few weeks, right? Uh, and I mean years. Like we can apply this just about any, any age of the church you can apply this to. But the last few weeks, you think about it. Like in the, if you wanted to, to make it bigger, you think about the pandemic and the longing that it has created in us, right? The pain that we've experienced from it, the hope that this thing will finally end, right? Or you think about the tension that exists in our country right now between the right and the left and just the, the vitriol that's so common and it's accepted that people are operating and living in, seeing their neighbors in this kind of way. Like we long for that to end. When I think about the shooting in, in Uvalde, right? Innocent children suffering for something we can't explain. We can't make sense of that. Or senior citizens shopping for groceries in Buffalo, right? And I think about those situations, and I have to ask myself, what do I really think the solution is for those things? Like, what do I think could really change those things? That reveals my narrative, the narrative I'm actually living according to. And so many of us are like, man, I just wish somebody had been there to stop that guy. Of course we do. But for Every one of those guys that we manage to stop, there'll be another one and another one. There's this sense in which, like, we think we can solve it. We think we can fix it, right? Whether it's, it's with a gun or with policy, we think we can fix these things over and over again. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try. God knows we pray into these things and we seek changes in laws. We do all of this stuff. Sure, we can do that, but... When we begin to believe this narrative that ultimately the cure for humanity is humanity, like we've lost something. Like we, we believe that, that, that we just need a, a, a more powerful figure to confront those who are doing these unjust acts. Like, no, that, that, won't, that won't fix it. We live according to these different narratives, and it's deceptive, it's subtle all the ways that we do, right? It's the same narrative that, that, that when we see, like, we're, we teach our children, right? Hey, listen, I, I don't want you to hit back. Don't hit kids. Don't. But as soon as somebody hits your kid for the first time, it will test that. You'll be like, do I really believe this whole turn the other cheek business? Because I don't want my kid to be a doormat, right? That's when we begin to realize what narrative we're actually living according to. We don't want to be subtle or, or nuanced about the way we do things and try to, like, define things. No, 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 no. Like, we want to come, come down on it as hard as we can, right? These moments in our lives, they kind of reveal our narratives. And Exodus is asking us, do you remember what you came from? Do you remember the old narrative? Do you remember that you were slaves? You aren't anymore. Have you actually switched stories? Or are you clinging to something else? And as we come to the table, right, the table is a very real reminder of Exodus, at the center of it is Passover, right? This is what the table comes from. The body and blood of Jesus. It all comes from this moment at Passover when Jesus and his disciples are together. And as we come to the table week in and week out, as the band comes this morning, like I invite you, like ask the question. I know sometimes that feels very meta to ask the question of like what narratives you're really invested in. But I think it's important for us. That's what Exodus confronts us with. It's comforting us with the hope of God's salvation and confronting us with the fact that sometimes we have very short memories. We forget who we once were. We forget what others are walking through. We only seek our own comfort and our own prosperity. 
What is the narrative, the story that we're living according to? How do we switch stories? So I invite you to come now, obviously. The band will play, uh, and you can come this way. Obviously, most of you are familiar with this. You can grab a cup and tear off a piece of bread, and then just hold on to that until I come back up. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these moments, and I thank you for the powerful story of your people. I thank you for Exodus. I thank you, Lord, that you've liberated us from slavery in more than one way. Yeah, from physical uh, oppression and, and struggle, Lord, from spiritual oppression and struggle. God, you liberate us from top to bottom. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, in his cross, in his body and his blood, broken and poured out, Lord, we have been delivered, Lord. That Jesus is the Messiah that, that we didn't know we needed. We thought it might look differently, God, but we thank you that you have revealed who you are in a very different way, God. And we pray, God, we would begin to embrace that story, that narrative, a different way of approaching our lives, a different way of seeing one another, a different way of seeing this world, a different way of loving. And help us to remember, we pray, in Jesus' name.